delve into plant stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Myth or fact? Opium comes from poppy seeds. Actually, that one's kind of a, a half myth. Technically, they don't come from the seeds, as you might believe. They come from a milky fluid that leaks out of unripe poppy pods. And this is what they use to make raw opium. That brings us into today's episode, Opium Poppy. Just real quick, a disclaimer for this entire episode. Uh, Obviously, as you may have already imagined, the Opium Poppy has quite a history, um, kind of, you know, throughout time, and so, uh, I made the choice not to really talk about, um, heroin and the things that it's kind of doing to us in current times, uh, partially because, you know, I, there was so much research on it, I didn't feel like I could fit it into this. Um, and also because I did kind of want to focus, like we have been on a lot of other things about more, you know, where this comes from and how that came about. So we will talk about that a little bit at the end, um, but we are not going to go too in depth about that in this episode. Um, so when we talk about the opium poppy, we know that the opium poppy comes from the Papaveraceae family. Uh, and it includes a huge, huge variety of other poppy plants. So that includes the California poppy, the Mexican tulip poppy, the tree poppy, the prickly poppy, and it's a huge family altogether. Uh, in total, this family includes about 825 species. Uh, the opium poppy specifically is called Papavir somniferium. Uh, It translates to the sleep-inducing poppy, and the plant itself is believed to be native to Turkey or around that area. It's an annual plant. It reaches about 3 to 16 feet tall or about 1 to 5 meters, and it has lobed or kind of toothed silver-green foliage often accompanied by like blue, purple, or white flowers that are about five inches or 13 centimeters wide. There are plenty of other uh, strains of this kind of poppy. Some of them have red flowers. Uh, Some of them have been bred to have multiple sets of petals and they're grown as ornamental plants. And it flourishes in warm, dry climates. There are a lot of dangerous plants grown as ornamental plants. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, the plants themselves do kind of need to attract things like bees and stuff still in order to pollinate, and that's kind of what bright, pretty flowers are meant to do, and these plants are very successful at it. They're not necessarily meant for human consumption, which is, you know, what we do. We just take stuff that's maybe, or maybe not meant for us, and we eat it. <laughs> yeah. Just to see what see happens. How, yeah, just to see 
how crazy it makes sense. <laughs> so where does the history of humans come into contact with the opium poppy? So kind of the earliest use of the opium as a plant that we chose to ingest in some way seems to predate really like written records. So some of the earliest written evidence of opium use, especially in medicinal purposes, comes from around 3,400 BC or so in Lower Mesopotamia, and it's noted on a Sumerian clay tablet that is considered the world's oldest list of medical prescriptions. So opium is well known as kind of one of the oldest painkillers that we know of. Uh, like you said, it's harvested from a seed pod before it's when it's still a bud, basically, before it's actually come to full ripeness. And there is this milky fluid that is called a latex that leaks out of it. And then that substance is dried and becomes the raw opium. So that process is believed to have been used many, many years ago. It's kind of always how they've known to get it. The Sumerians referred to it as the Kulgil plant or the joy plant. Um, and Assyrians later coined it the medicine of the gods and considered it the plant of life. So this tells me that they are probably not totally using it for medicinal purposes at this time, <laughs> but becoming part of know, the, the culture. Uh, there also appears to be evidence of the poppy plant in Greek and Egyptian cultures in later years, it especially flourishes under the reign of King Tutankhamun around 13,033 BC, and it was mentioned in Homer's Odyssey as having healing powers. In Egypt, it was most widely cultivated in Thebes. And there are some records that say uh, ancient Greeks believed Demeter discovered it. And a little bit later in Roman times, it was believed that many of the early Roman emperors such as Nero, Titus, Nerva, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius were major consumers of opium. And they have a little bit of evidence of this in this inventory of the Imperial Palace of Rome that was dated uh, 214 AD and it lists 17 tons. So just to you know give you a better idea of that, that's uh, 34,000 pounds or about 15,422 kilograms of just opium, just chilling in the palace. Oh. So uh, that's pretty intense, I feel. And, you know, this seems to kind of continue, but, you know, the Christians then came and they kind of ruined everything, like they do sometimes. <laughs> just kidding. But they did ban the use of poppy as a painkiller because 
They believe that illness was a punishment from God and should be endured. And so it kind of disappears uh, for about 200 years or so in the Western consciousness. Yeah. So the next time I saw it really come up again is the Opium War. So a quick kind of overview of the Opium Wars. Raw opium's popularity after a certain point caused it to be one of the things traded on the Silk Road. So Silk Road is a group of interconnected routes that ran from China to Europe with stops in between, including other places like India or Persia. And it was via this route that opium was first introduced to China in the 6th and 7th centuries AD, so pretty early on. And they knew about it, they were aware of it, um, but it was really only taken orally to relieve tension and pain, and it was often taken in limited quantities until the 17th century. So around this time, as the British Empire's demand for tea, porcelain, and silk really started to increase, they began trading opium from their holdings in the East India Company in order to obtain the things that they wanted. And this was a big part of the cause of a massive spike in opium addictions in China. And these addictions were also kind of thought to be exacerbated by the fact that tobacco smoking had also been introduced in that area. And so it kind of increased the people who were already casually smoking and opium was then added to that. Mm. And so it kind of caused this large chain of addiction. It was introduced to them by the Dutch. And then, you know, soon after that, the British came in with this and it just became craziness. Uh, there were a lot of people who were addicted. It started to affect everyone from like the bottom to the top of the food chain like there were nobles who were addicted to it there were you know peasants who were addicted to it and it just seemed kind of chaotic and so in 1729 the emperor passed a law prohibiting the sale and smoking of opium and then in 1796 the following emperor attempted to outlaw the importation and cultivation of the plant. But in all reality, nothing really happened. And even though this war was between primarily the British and the Chinese, at least the first war, it's, I think, kind of important to remark as well that lots of countries were in on the opium trade. So Britain certainly held a monopoly as it had figured out a way to produce the plant abundantly and cheaply, but the Portuguese and the U.S., um, who also dealt in Turkish opium, and some other European countries were involved as well in the trade as a whole. And part of the reason that this really became an issue is because there was this chronic trade imbalance with China, so Europeans really wanted all this silk and porcelain and stuff and it meant that they were kind of like in debt to China. They didn't have anything to give them. The Chinese weren't super interested in European goods. And so basically by 
getting the population addicted to opium and then providing them with said opium, they were kind of able to change that balance almost into the fact where actually it tipped kind of more towards the European side. Which is kind of crazy sinister if you think about it because you basically got a whole population addicted to a dangerous drug and then you were like, yes, that's great. Here's some of that. Give me all your goods. But anyway, so, I mean, by the 1820s and 30s, basically, they weren't selling it directly to the Chinese. They were having these private traders who would bring these chests of opium to Chinese smugglers. And in return, they would get gold, and then they would go to China using that gold to get the goods that they wanted in return. So they were bringing these Chinese smugglers about 10,000 chests of opium a year. And each chest weighed about 140 pounds, or about 63.5 kilograms. And, I mean, this was like a massive influx of the drug. And it did really just like start affecting the entire population. And ultimately this led to the two opium wars, both of which China lost. The first was just fought between Britain and China and it didn't legalize opium in China, but it did prevent China from enforcing the legislation. And the second war, which was fought by the British French Alliance against China, then actually forced them to legalize the trade, although they were able to place a small import tax on it. So, you know, concessions. Um, it was also through these wars that Britain uh, was able to obtain Hong Kong, which if you know, any, you know anything about that political sphere, that area was only returned to China uh, relatively recently. I'm pretty sure in the 1990s. but I could be wrong, don't quote me on that. And so during this time, uh, you know, by the 1860s, the use of the drug increased to 50,000 to 60,000 cases per year. So that's 700,000 pounds per year or about 317,000 514 kilograms, like 350 tons, and continued to increase for the next three decades up until the 1900s, which is insane. And it's also worth noting that as some Chinese peoples began to immigrate to the United States in order to help build railroads, they did also bring with them their opium addictions, causing opium dens to spring up in Chinatowns and some other locations and kind of spreading that a little bit to the U.S., which later led to racism in the U.S. against Chinese. Not the only reason, but it was a contributing factor at the time. And it wasn't really until the 1900s that the trade began to decline. And at that point, China was finally able to enforce some regulations on these trades coming from India. And it seemed to be almost completely stopped by 1917, but opium as an issue within the country did not actually cease to be a problem until the 
communist takeover in 1949. So that's quite a long time. That's, you know, this is like a couple hundred years of strife over this plant compound. an idea even though we do know that obviously the scent is in fact a drug that was occasionally used for recreational purposes mm-hmm. it has been and continues to be recognized as one of the greatest painkillers of all time like quite honestly nothing really rivals opium and its compatriots as a painkiller. And that's part of the reason why I think it's considered dangerous is because we do still kind of almost feel like we have to use it because we know that there isn't really anything that works quite as well, quite as effectively, quite as comprehensively as this plant and its derivatives. And we've known that for a long time. We do also know that there are more than 30 different types of alkaloids known to be present in this uh, Papaver somniferium plant. That's complex. And, you know, even Hippocrates in 430 BC, he kind of dismissed any like magical properties because of course there were some kind of myths about it, but He does note it as a useful medicinal plant, uh, especially as a pain relief and a styptic, which just means um, something that stops uh, or initiates blood clotting, sorry. Um, And it was something that our BFF Dioscorides agreed with. We've heard a lot about him. And uh, this is one of the things that he does mention um, in his works. So it was mainly used as a pain reliever. It was also used sometimes to treat stuff like, you know, quote unquote, women's troubles. Oh, yeah. You or, mean us caring about stuff? Uh, to <laughs> induce sleep in some people. Yeah. <laughs> and also to induce sleep in some people. Uh, and those were kind of its primary uses. It did seem that it was not taken constantly. Most people took it at small intervals at certain points and never had a problem, uh, you know, before kind of some of these like more addictive substances came out or new ways to ingest them and use them kind of recreationally were discovered. Right. So one of the most popular versions of opiates was laudanum, which I feel like everyone's heard of. Chris, I'm sure you've heard of that. Actually, I haven't. So laudanum, as the kind of like popular drug that it became, uh, was made in 1680 by the English apothecary Thomas Sydenham. And he introduced Sydenham's laudanum, which was a compound of raw opium, sherry wine, and herbs. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was more popular than the original laudanum because there was a similar compound that was just made with opium and alcohol. Um, and it was made by the alchemist Paracelsus. I think is how you say it. I'm sure I said that wrong. But it was made about essentially early or a century earlier. And at this time, uh, when it was made by Sydenham, it was kind of marketed as a general cure-all. So it kind of blew up, really. Kind of similar, in a way, to Coca-Cola, although this was not necessarily, like, marketed as, like, your regular drink and or tonic. Um, However, it was widely available by the 1800s. Like, you could purchase this stuff anywhere. You go to the pub, it's there. You go to the grocery, it's there. You go to the pharmacist, it's there. And they even actually sold it at candy stores, so confectioner shops. At, at first, they didn't really recognize its addictive properties, necessarily. You know, this is kind of coming at the same time where, like, this is coming off you know, if you think of the timeline off of um, when they were still selling it at a profit to China, and then they just brought some home, basically, and they made this compound. It was something that was cheap, very cheap, so it was readily available to everyone, which is part of what made it so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it tasted good. I don't know. It sounds like it would taste okay. And it was prescribed for pretty much everything. So, soothing, cranking babies, diarrhea, headache, persistent cough, gout, rheumatism, melancholy. They're like, oh, you're sad? Here, have some of this. You won't be sad no more. Don't yeah. worry. The medicine of the gods. It's so, interesting I how mean, much stuff we infused into wine. I think alcohol definitely has the ability, because it's such a strong taste, to um, cover the taste of some things. And I also think in these earlier times, it was much more common for everybody to be drinking alcohol. Like, you talk about how it wasn't necessarily safe, you know, centuries ago to just, like, drink the local water. Right. Especially if you didn't get it from the right place, so... It was much more popular, I think, and I mean, it would have a stronger taste than water, and I think it was much more popular to already be drinking wine anyway, so if you had to take a painkiller, you know, you would just mix it with your wine, that makes, I mean, I don't know, that makes sense to me. Yeah. We drink it with water now, yeah. But, yeah, like I said, it was just incredibly widely available. To all levels of people, and it was in a hugely wide range of stores and places, and so some pretty well-known people are known to have developed, you know, addictions to it. You have, like, Bram Stoker, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, John Keats, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, Samuel Coolidge just to name a few of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Some people would die from the ailments that brought them to the drug in the first place, but many people just became, like, hopelessly addicted to this drug. And there was an author named Thomas De Quincey, and he wrote a book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And he basically outlined how he believed that opium, especially compared to alcohol, greatly increased one's creative powers. Mm. And this kind of only spurred on this addiction, as you can imagine. You know, I've listed all those people, and pretty much all those people are creative. They would be, you know, some of the hip and upcoming people of that time. And yeah. So there was kind of this belief that if you wanted to be more creative, like this was the way to go. And so some of these people swore by it. And this book did become popular and really only kind of solidified this thought that, you know, laudanum was needed to be more creative. Like almost like if you had an ailment or bad childhood or something, you were already predisposition to be creative but taking this loud enough would not only decrease your pain but only increase your creativity which is a pretty dangerous combination when you think about it I mean I can definitely see why you know you try it for the first time and you're like oh I'm so relaxed my mind feels clear I'm feeling more confident you'd be like oh yeah this is exactly what I was looking for and, you know, it doesn't stay that way the whole time. Yeah. And it, it did become that kind of, a lot of these people really did, like, spiral. Some of them, if they didn't die from whatever affliction, possibly if they had one, brought them to Labanin in the first place. Uh, they died because of their addiction. So, uh, like, Samuel Coolridge, who wrote the famous poem Kubla Khan, after a Laudanum-inspired dream, he said that it did increase his creative power, but towards the end of his life, he was hopelessly addicted to it. It caused him to, you know, lie and cheat. And it's really a very depressing account of what he turned into as a person as a result of that. And as a result of this want to be more creative. And another example of kind of a more famous person who fell to this addiction is the brother of the Bronte sisters. So a lot of people don't hear about Bramwell Bronte because his sisters are the ones who successfully wrote, you know, like Jane Eyre and things like that. And their brother, whose name was Bramwell Bronte, actually died at 31 because of his laudanum addiction. And it's really kind of sad because he he was kind of, you know, a compatriarch of his sisters. He had the same kind of depressing upbringing and in a way the same kind of creative potential. He was raised in the same kind of environment. They kind of supported each other. But ultimately he took laudanum uh, for an injury and then he just fell deeply into addiction, especially as he could just not withstand the rejections that many creative artists have. And after a year, 
since his sister's most famous novels were published, he had passed and hadn't actually successfully made any significant work of his own, which is really um, quite sad. Yeah, and that's a surprisingly common situation, like where people get injured and they need it for medicine and then it never leaves them again. Yeah, it's it was definitely, I mean, in a way, I'm sure it had its good points for people who maybe had chronic illness, but like a lot of people sure. with chronic illness, I think would tell you after a certain point, you need more and more to get the same effect. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, that's what happened to these people. There were people whose whole lives revolved around this drug. I did read quite a few accounts where it was kind of like, alluded to that someone was a addicted to the laudanum but you know it was never quite like said out loud like oh this person is addicted to this drug probably because of kind of you know society kind of mm -hmm. looking down upon that and honestly there were also which you know some people kind of talk about less there were a lot of women who really fell into this drug, especially because they were much more centered around the home. Mm -hmm. And so being centered around the home meant that they were kind of able to hide their addictions much better. Yeah. You know, they could make the excuse that they didn't want to go out because they were fatigued or whatever. And it, it was often, you know, described that like, oh, your mother is just tired or whatever, and uh, they were kind of able to hide away in the house a little bit more. And it's not that nobody knew what was going on, but it was just less talked about that uh, that was going on in the home, and you could kind of easily skirt it under the rug in that way. So it was definitely sad and something that was kind of very pervasive. Um, eventually, accounts by addicts really swayed public opinion about the drugs. Uh, and it eventually was regulated in like the later 1800s, so like 1870s. Uh, there kind of started to be regulation popping up about where you could buy it, how much you could buy, who you could prescribe it to. And then finally in 1899, aspirin uh, came about. And so for those like smaller general ailments that people were taking this drug for, uh, it no longer became necessary for them to have this level of painkiller. They could very easily take the aspirin and get, you know, an effective amount of painkilling. And so, Loudman be kind of fell out of favor since aspirin was able to take over a significant amount of those ailments. Yeah, but I mean, it was a crazy drug, and it I I personally have heard of it. I think mostly in connection with writers. Yeah. Uh, even if a writer maybe wasn't per se known to have an addiction to laudanum, I have definitely heard, you know, like, rumors that somebody was, or 
whatever, stuff like Alice in Wonderland, you know, they would say that the author of that was taking it or probably was taking it when he wrote it, even though you don't really know because if you write something that's creative and, and different, they assumed that it could possibly be from a drug-induced fantasy. Yeah. Well, the, the top reference that came to my mind was Wizard of Oz, where the group of adventurers find themselves in the poppy field and they're like overwhelmed with the smell and the beauty and as they're traveling through they all just get pulled into this deep slumber because of the flowers uh, which kind of you know connects to it definitely having the reputation of being a, a plant of uh, sleep yeah and definitely I mean I don't know. For me, I guess maybe it's just because I did study English in school. I don't know. But a lot of those writers from that time period especially were, were known to have an issue with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wonder how things would have been different if they did not have that. Um, I think it's also good to note that uh, around this time is also when morphine was first isolated. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily used the same way that uh, it was used in laudanum, but morphine was first isolated in the early 1800s by Wilhelm Serpner, who was a German chemist. And where other drugs had kind of failed to fully eliminate pain, uh, morphine was extraordinarily successful for it, especially for people suffering from diseases or chronic illnesses, including things like cancer. Um, and that kind of cemented its place as a drug in the more like modern medical profession. Yeah. So as we know, from before, even also in the U.S., this kind of became like a quiet addiction. Uh, whether it was morphine or the actual raw opium, a lot of this stuff was just being used and marketed as cure-alls or cough syrups or whatever. And so if you were feeling sick in any way, you would just go buy this from wherever you could get it. And as it kind of is the same with with Coca-Cola, with the Loudonum, a lot of these products were just readily available for anyone to take. And so there was a lot of kind of secret addiction, a lot of like housewife addiction, because you would start off taking something because you had a cough and you needed to get rid of it because you had work to do that day or whatever. And it would quickly become something that you found you needed. And, you know, this also happened with morphine. Uh, morphine was included in tonics and syrups and, you know, other things like that. And it was also noted that it had the ability to kind of protect the system against traumatic shock, internal hemorrhage, and congestive heart failure. It's considered kind of a general depressant. And 
So, you know, initially, even though I think its addictive properties were considered, it was considered that these things ultimately outweighed the addictive properties and was still being used. Mm -hmm. And so in 1874, heroin was synthesized by an English chemist. And then later in the 1890s, it was marketed by the German pharmaceutical company Bayer. And it was kind of supposed to be initially used as a substitute to try to curb morphine abuse because of morphine's addictive properties. It's just that, unfortunately, heroin turned out to also be highly addictive. Mm -hmm. And so the use of the drug really skyrocketed and we have had trouble with it since kind of the early 1900s. And in the early 1900s, it was also still kind of widely available. And soon enough, pretty quickly, in that same time period of the early 1900s, the US began to pass legislation and regulations on the use and sale of these associated opiates, with them finally coming fully illegal in 1924. And even though I won't go into crazy detail about them, some other opiate alkaloids that we know of are like codeine or oxycodone is actually made from another alkaloid. Um, and they're all derived from the same plant and they're all used because they're extremely effective at reducing pain. And in the case of codeine, they are really good for treating uh, intense cough. Yeah. So ultimately, that's kind of how, you know, this came to be what it is today, how it got into our market in the first place. There was just a time, I think, of like, almost like Wild West style regulation, you know, like anybody who could make it or get their hands on it could have it or sell it. And once that stopped, we still, you know, kind of had a problem with it. There were still people who are addicted to it. And sadly, the compounds that have resulted from that and since been synthesized and made in even more ways, uh, we still struggle with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a, there, a couple years ago, there were a few days I spent in the hospital and I was, you know, rating myself at a 9 out of 10 of pain, and so they gave me morphine. And, gosh, less than an hour, everything was great. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this is extremely effective. <laughs> yeah, it is good at what it does, you know. It, yeah. It, it, it's incredibly good at that. Um, and it's just very unfortunate that there is also this incredible drawback mm -hmm. as well. Well, at least we're on the upswing of regulation and trying to, obviously, we're, there's a lot that can be said about what's going on presently, but I think that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, definitely, and I think that uh, it's it's tough, you know. 
it, it, it's a tough thing to think about, and I think ultimately when these things were first brought about, I mean, the I, I don't know, the opium war is questionable, but as far as what we know today, like things like morphine and codeine and oxycodone and even, you know, the original first kind of synthesis of heroin, it was really about, you know, trying to help people, trying to find a way to, you know, help give people direct pain relief. Uh, unfortunately, it's just very difficult to, you know, regulate everything else. But ultimately, on the flip side of that, we do still have poppy seeds. So like we talked about, uh, you know, there are some alkaloids on the outside of poppy seeds, but the concentration is nowhere near raw opium. A lot of those compounds get used up in the making of the seeds in the pod. And so the seeds are perfectly safe to eat. And for, I would say, probably just as long as they've been using raw opium, they have been using poppy seeds. Um, they are safe to eat. The seed capsules were found in Switzerland in prehistoric cave dwellings. So, you know, that tells us that people have been eating and using this as a way to flavor food for quite some time. And uh, it is important to note that the seeds actually can result in positive drug tests, depending on both the sensitivity of the test and the potential levels in the seeds. So sometimes in the process of drying these seeds, uh, you know, you can get different concentrations of the alkaloids that, you know, are in the regular plant. And so occasionally you can get a high enough level that it will, it will show up on a test. That is not a myth. It is accurate. And uh, so it's something to keep in mind, certainly, if you're going to eat them. But they have been used for centuries to add flavor to all kinds of dishes, Bread and cakes. Um, on their own, the seeds are known to have kind of like a mild nutty taste, and they are very rich in essential minerals, including like calcium and iron, magnesium, zinc. And some people are thought that they still kind of have like a little bit of a similar effect to morphine at a much, much more mild level. Like they can be helpful for relieving abdominal pain. Uh, so, like if you have a tummy ache or uh, they can kind of like help pep you up a little bit, help with the relief of exhaustion. And sometimes they can even just like aid in a better sleep. So, you know, it's not all bad. poppy seeds. They're pretty good. I especially like them with lemon. I don't know why. But like lemon poppy seed bread. Mwah. So good. So, so, so good. And uh, don't try opiates, kids. So what are we going to talk about in our next episode?
our next episode, we are going to be talking about Ephedra, which is a plant that is native to China and is used in the making of meth. And so we're going to give that a shot. We're going to we're going to have some conversation about that plant. It also has a lot of medical properties, so we're going to dive into that for sure as well. Well, thank you all for joining us on our latest episode of Plant Stories, Dangerous Plants on the Opium Poppy. If you enjoyed our episode, please give it a like, a subscribe, a follow, share it with a friend. We look forward to you all joining us next week as we talk about ephedra. Bye! Bye!